Welcome to the CPA Success Podcast. I'm Jen Nicholson. And I'm Blair Cook. And today we're delighted to have Tom Hood with us. And Tom is the CEO of the Maryland Association of CPAs and Business Learning Institute. Tom is considered one of the most influential leaders in the global accounting profession. Tom helps CPAs and organizations be future ready through his work at the Business Learning Institute that provides state-of-the-art learning curriculums, strategy, and leadership development for the top 500 CPA firms, Fortune 500 corporations, nonprofits, state CPA societies, and international businesses. Today, we are going to talk to Tom about how to future-proof your organization. What got you to the top in the past is not going to get you there in the future. Looking forward to it, so let's get started. Welcome back to the CPA Success Podcast. I'm Jen Nicholson, and I'm very excited to be here with Tom Hood today. Thanks for joining us, Tom. It's glad to be here, Jen. Tom is the CEO of MACPA, and what does that stand for? So MACPA is the Maryland Association of Certified Public Accountants. So it's a U.S. state-based association like your provincial CPAs here up in Canada. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming uh, up north, across the border, for to see us. <laughs> You're also with the Business Learning Institute. Now, what is that? Correct. So the Business Learning Institute is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Maryland Association of CPAs, and it is uh, innovation and learning. So we focus on what we like to call strategic success skills. Other people call them soft skills, although we have a little bit of a... uh, objection to that term because there's nothing soft about them. Well, interesting. You're the second person we've heard say that today, that soft skills are actually pretty hard. Yes. Yeah. Why is that? Because they're the things about people and people are challenging, right? They're unpredictable. They're very complex. And so running a computer system is one thing, but dealing with a bunch of people on a team is another thing. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of challenges that come with that. And you were named the second most influential person in accounting in 2017 by Accounting Today magazine. So how do you feel being the second most influential person? I like to say as number two, I try harder. So (laughs) (laughs) that's excellent. That's pretty impressive uh, to to, to get that name. And I think one of the reasons you received that title is that you are followed by 750,000 people on LinkedIn. That yeah. is remarkable. It, it's, uh, I'm humbled by it, uh, but it's the result of being early in on social media and, uh, and then saying things that people must think matter. So that's the beauty of social media, right? They only follow you if you say good stuff or something they care about. Otherwise, they unfollow you. So Yeah, that's true. So it's kind of my measure that I'm like relevant. Absolutely. I have about 6,000 connections and I am in the top, you know, 1% for sure. So uh, that's pretty impressive. So do you post a lot? Are you putting out thought leadership all the time? I try to, yeah. So I'm usually posting. I'm either posting or putting in like point of view on other people's posts because certainly it's not all about me. And so that's really what I do is I look for um, good folks that are saying stuff and and, uh, pushing the conversation forward on thinking about the future, innovation and keeping our profession relevant. That's excellent. Well, I just started following you today, so I'm looking well, forward to that. And uh, your talk at our conference uh, that we're, we're presenting at today is uh, the future ready finance leader. What got you here won't get you there. So that is a very provocative title. And um, to start with that, so what are some of the things that got our older finance leaders to the top? And what, what has changed? So I think, you know, it's funny, we, uh, we do a leadership session where we ask people, you know, has leadership changed? So the interesting thing, I think, what leadership does has not changed. 
how it does it has changed. Okay, so what does leadership do? So a leadership sets direction, right? Encourages people to go to a, to get accomplish things as a group, right? Company or team or finance group, and uh, and they keep everyone moving, right? That's the that's the idea of progress. So I think that is what we're still trying to do. It's just the old ways of command and control don't work today. Right. So sort of the old-fashioned leadership style would someone starts with a company and they work their way up and the longer you've been there, the higher on the totem pole you are. Right. Right. It was all based on longevity and hierarchy and all those kind of things. I think right now what we're seeing is it's more like managing a network. So connections matter, transparency, trust, and authentic leadership matters. And those are different than what we used to have in the old days. It used to be a mask. The leader had that persona of the leader. I say something, you do it. Now, if I say something, people don't do it unless you can inspire them to want to do it. Interesting. Now, why is it that they don't do it anymore? I think it's a function of two things. The overwhelming nature of work, the whole stats on the overwhelmed employee and disengagement and those kind of things. So that means it's harder for them to retain the order to even think about and how do I work it into what I'm already doing. That's the first thing. And then I think the second one is the generational push. So between millennials and Gen Xers, they just aren't buying that you're a leader because you're a leader and because you have age and seniority. So I think that's what's now started to change. Wow. And what are the stats on disengaged employees? 70%. 70%. And 25% of those are actively disengaged, which means they hate you and they're trying to encourage others to join them. Wow. That is shocking. <laughs> that's Gallup. Gallup's uh, Really? Poll, yes. And that's global. Uh, it, it actually, different countries have different stats around that, but they're all pretty much in that range, kind of that generic number. So how do you define a disengaged employee? So disengaged employee is someone who uh, is going through the motions, right? They're giving you their eight hours or whatever they're being paid for. They're not applying any extra thinking and they're like dying for the weekend, right? That's yeah. the disengaged employee. The people and, that have the calendar, you know, marking off the months till they get to retire. Yeah, yeah. Wow, but 70%, that's pretty shocking. It is pretty shocking. So how do you change that? So as a leader, uh, it starts with you, right? You have to know yourself. In fact, we're doing a leadership program up here tomorrow, and we'll be talking about kind of this idea of one being conscious of your environment. So one thing is understanding the environment you're in. The next one is being conscious of your inner self. So like an inner game and an outer game. Okay. So to manage your inner game, we like to say start with your strengths. We, we use the Gallup strengths-based tool, but there's all kinds of tools that help you understand yourself, whether it's Myers-Briggs or DISC or all those. But the point is you have to really understand yourself so that you can know how you show up for people. Right. Right, for your team. And then the next part is you're going to have to understand your team. And what are their strengths, right? So they say it's not about the leader's strengths. It's about the strengths of who's on your team. And how do you understand your team? So you, you can use those survey instruments, and, and, but you spend time listening and kind of learning about them, right? And once you've got that, now you've got trust. They trust you, right? So that's essential. And that means you can't be doing a lot of things that they won't trust you about. So you have to watch that. And then it's about setting direction and getting them engaged. So what we like to say is collaboration. We think one of the top strengths for leaders today is collaboration. Because it, it is about co-creating. And we actually think the collaboration curve will beat the experience curve. 
Wow. So what does that mean? A collaboration so, versus so experience? Think about it. So if you think about the old days, mm -hmm. uh, you could be an expert in your discipline and you could probably keep that expertise for quite a while. In fact, I look at the accounting degree. When I graduated, my accounting degree, think about inventory of knowledge stuck in my head. And then we go and say, I could sell that inventory for about 15 years before I had to really renew it much. Today, the average college degree has a lifespan of about three years. Really? And that information is obsolete. Literally, wow. it's changed so significantly, it might not be relevant in the workplace. So if you're not renewing that, uh, and what, how do you renew that? Well, you have to, you'd have to be in school full-time, continuously learning, or I can know smart people in the company, outside the company, in my network, and I can tap you. Oh, Jen knows a lot about strengths. So I'm going to get a quick kind of up to speed with you, and then I'm going to go read a little more, and then I can apply it to my work. So I think it's this idea of who you know now will be more important than what you know. Okay, interesting. Right? Because who you know is your network, and that's where you're going to get to that extra knowledge. So you're doing pretty good with 750,000 followers. Well, believe it or not, that's exactly why I use social media. Always have, right? It's my learning tool. So Absolutely. I, I build my network on the fringes of where I see trends. And then from that network, I can tap into them at any point in time and say, well, what's going on here? What does that mean? And literally get up to speed like that uh, versus somebody sitting there trying to study it and go crazy on it. So how do we train our new CPAs to to be able to adapt and be the leaders that we need in the future. Well, I think that's the key, right? Is is the so I grew up. I'm a baby boomer, so I grew up under what I call the monkey see, monkey do leadership model, which was you know, son, you work really hard like me, and you'll get what I get. Um, that doesn't work anymore. So right. as a result, and and quite frankly, there's plenty of us baby boomers who don't know how to teach the next generation because we haven't done it that way. We grew up in a whole different world. So I think now it's about giving them a new way of thinking. Again, it starts with knowing yourself. It does get to this idea of collaboration. And then this notion of context, really understanding the future trends. And we've got a framework that we use to help. That's what we did in the future leader session, uh, future ready leader, is get them to like think about some things that you can be certain about in the midst of all the noise of all the things you hear every day on the news. And then filter your world and, and look at the impact on your company or your business, or if you're in practice, or your practice, and then begin to make sense of it that way. So like, should I be doing artificial intelligence? Well, artificial intelligence is a hard trend, which means it's going to exponentially double every year for now to the future. So the longer you wait, we like to say standing still is now falling behind. Right. So that's an example of where a young leader could say, okay, I got to look at cloud, I got to look at AI, I got to look at blockchain, and inevitably they're going to be at play for us somewhat, and I better start putting my antenna up and looking for that, and then talking about what do we need to do to be with that trend or ahead of it even, right? right. And that's where that context is important. So how do you apply it to your company? Correct. So how do you make this work in an organization where you have leaders of all different generations. So you're talking about baby boomers being monkey see, monkey do. How are Gen Xers? How, how do they behave? So Xers are, you know, you have to watch generational stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. Always, there's always exceptions. But the, the Xers are known for not being collaborative. Uh, most Xers grew up in what they call the latchkey environment, right, where mom and dad were working and they often were coming home by themselves very responsible generation, but self-reliant as opposed to team-reliant. 
Whereas millennials are herd animals. They like to collectively work together, right? They just love, that's how they've been taught. That's how they've, they had play dates when they were babies and all the way up. So, so that difference means it's a little harder for an Xer to collaborate, especially with millennials. Um, of course, boomers, boomers had millennial children. So boomers kind of have that edge there. They um, sort of understand them. They understand them probably a little bit better. Although I would say Xers are the, the key linchpin of this leadership transition point. You guys, the leaders, that group is going to be the ones that are going to take over. So we got to make sure they're ready. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's teaching them collaboration, which we know how to do. I think it's also getting them more aware of why this collaboration notion is important. So, so first of all, if you want to engage employees, all you have to do is make them collaborate and try to figure it out. So I'll give you a perfect example. Yeah. At work, everyone's like, oh, my people hate working here. They're all disengaged. So I'm like, well, get them together and say, what would it be to make, what would it make it better? And they're like, well, I'm not going to ask them that. They're going to say they want more time off and more. And I said, no, no, no. You don't ask the question that way. What you say is, how can we be a truly great finance team and a great place for you to work? What would that look like? Now, let's get in a room and say, what are the five things that would be cool to do that? Whoa. Let them be part of that solution. Guaranteed, if you give them the right question, they'll answer it in a really responsible, cool way. And I've seen it work. And suddenly these guys are like, wow, they're, they got great ideas. Oh. You just you never have to really listen to people. Listen to them. Wow. But you have to learn how to structure that listening. So we like to say it's, it's actually a facilitation skill. How do I create a conversation and facilitate people engage in that conversation and get to an outcome? Okay. So uh, lots of challenges for us Gen Xers to apply in the workplace. Now, who comes after the millennials? Because that's I mean, they're all now of age. Correct. So there's another generation coming along. I guess my kids. Gen Z. <laughs> yeah, Gen generation Z. Okay. Z is already entering the workplace. They're they're graduating from college right now for the most part, um, or maybe a year or two in. So that generation, they say, actually has, and this is a little bit scary, I think, for millennials because this generation has the work ethic of the baby boomers. Because they they lived through the Great Recession of 2008, 9, okay. 10, 11, however long it's been lasting. And so they understand the value of a job because they watch their older sibling, millennial siblings, live in the basement. Yeah, and still living in the basement. <laughs> yeah, still living in the basement. And they're like, okay, I'm not doing that. <laughs> Thank goodness. I don't, I don't want my kids living in my basement when they're 30. <laughs> So they say they have a different work ethic. They're much more. They're even more tech savvy than millennials, and they kind of grew up in this, you know, security world of all the crazy stuff that's going on. So they're, they're, they're much more global. Uh, they're much more diverse. Uh, they're very, very kind of. They love diversity in solving problems, right? And so that's the other part of collaboration. Diversity trumps homogenous every time. So like by a factor of eight, like they say, it's like, I think Deloitte did a study in Australia and they said that a homogenous, uh, so a group of like, like thinkers in a company, usually the like sex, gender, et cetera, ethnic would, uh, against a very diverse group, all kinds of age, different sex, ethnic, that they outperform the homogenous group by 800%. 800%. Because they're coming at it with different backgrounds and different stories and it gives a much more complete picture of solving a problem than anything else. That is and incredible. So that's, you know, so this generation has lived for the most part in very diverse environments and they're completely comfortable with it. 
So you don't have to break down any of those barriers and all those kinds of things. Do you think we talk about these wide groups of people in very stereotypical ways? Yes. Do we really need to look at an organization that way? Or can we sort of set up like a core culture that you want and expectations and just try to make everyone fit? You, you hit the nail on the head. You have to, the best is to create the culture you want. And if you're smart, it will be a diverse collaborative culture because that's what wins. And uh, In any situation. In any situation, right? So that's like, wh- why, why try to mess with that formula? We know it works. So creating the right culture, and then you're right, the tighter the culture is in terms of your beliefs and behaviors that you all want as a group, if you onboard people correctly in that culture, they'll know if they fit or not. Uh, and then hopefully you'll get more of them. It's like a magnet, right? You'll attract more of what you want and repel more of what you don't want. And right. if they don't fit, it will show up. And either they'll leave or they'll be forced to leave, right? So that's how you ultimately tighten up a corporate culture. If you look at all the winning organizations in the world, those are the ones that have really, really strong cultures and, and know how to enforce it. It's for, enforced through training and development and hiring and onboarding and all those different spots. What are some examples of the best cultures in the world? Well, it's funny now. I don't know if it's still the best. Like a lot of these things have ebb and flow. But I, I've had some experience with like Ritz-Carlton. So Ritz-Carlton Hotel chain. And... Uh, you know, they've got a, a tremendous culture. I remember meeting their chief operating officer, and we were looking for actually a hotel spot for a convention. And I'll never forget, I said, you know, you we're down here in this area. It was Amelia Island in Florida. And I said, you know, there's a Holiday Inn down the street. And there, but you're like this one luxury resort in this area. How do you get people? Like, what's the, do you overpay people like a lot against your competition in order to attract the kind of people you have here? He's like, nope, we pay them the same amount. I was like, how do you do that? Like, he goes, it's all about training and development and, and values. So when we onboard them, and he was telling me the story, they all have a, the Ritz-Carlton set of values. It says, we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And then it's got their values, right? He said, every one of our employees has that on them at all times. And if we ever walk by and ask them to pull it out, they'll pull it out and be able to recite it. So I'm like, yeah, right. Okay, I get this. So, so I'm with a banquet woman who's showing us the facility, right? And I'm watching her. So she's in a skirt and pumps, and no purse. So I'm like, ha, she doesn't have that card on <laughs> Where's her card? <laughs> I'm like, where's that card? So I go to her. I said, all right, so, you know, we met. And I said, well, do you have the values card? And she goes, oh, yeah. So she picks her leg up, takes her pump off, and pulls out the little sheet. <laughs> it's in her shoe. She had it in her shoe. Like that, now, that's core values. But, but here's the really crazy thing. So every maid we met would stop and look at you in the eye and say good morning or good afternoon, or whatever. And if they if they were on your floor, they knew your name. But we were in this ballroom where an electrician was up in the middle of the ballroom fixing a light. And so we walk in with a banquet hostess, and she says, I don't know where the light switch is. And the electrician says, stop, gets down from the ladder, walks all the way across the ballroom, and turns the light on for her. Right? Now, how many would you ever see a contractor? Never. In a, you wouldn't even see employees of a company do that, Correct. So even they onboard their contractors with their values. That's a killer culture. And that's why when you go to a Ritz pretty much anywhere around the world, you're going to get good Southwest Airlines is another one back in the U.S. That, you know, it's a, yeah, which has a great culture. It's a great culture. It's fun. They take, don't take themselves too seriously. But they won't serve you meals, right? They're not going to ever do that. You get peanuts or now it's pretzels. So those are cultures that they've defined who they serve, what they stand for, 
And what's important about the people that work there? And then that's standard, right? Everywhere and they you live go. it. And they live it. And anyone who doesn't fit is... They hire uh, and fire off that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. And that, that, so that's that what a leader a of the future wow. needs to be cognizant of. We'll talk tomorrow about this idea of what is a magnetic culture, one that attracts engaged employees and repels disengaged employees. Yeah, that's incredible. And is it possible for older leaders to adapt to be successful Absolutely. in this new culture? Absolutely. This new world? It's not that hard. I mean, it takes some vulnerability. So you have to be ready to say, I'm going to be who I really am. And uh, But once you do it, it's kind of freeing. I mean, I've kind of been on that journey. And it's it's nice to let, let people know this is who I am. Here's my flaws. Here's my strengths. And then trying to make sure you're building a team with their strengths to complement your strengths. It's actually easier instead of trying to be all things to all people and doing this like, you know, leader that knows all the answers. That's the difference, right? The leader today doesn't know the answers half the time. Yeah, they just know where to get them. You know where to get them and you know, and you also say, we'll figure it out together. Get my team together and say, let's go figure it out. That sounds like a lot more fun. It is. So uh, as we wrap up, what are five skills or traits that new CPAs can use, or actually any CPAs can use to differentiate themselves? Yeah, so we've just done that research. We call it a T-shaped professional. Okay. So is that like T-accounts? Could be like T-accounts. Really, <laughs> only really only, only accounts will but get that joke. That is true. So I think, so we, we call it, uh, so you have to have the, the uh, vertical part of the T, right, is the deep technical domain knowledge. That's accounting tax, audit, that's you have to know your, your technical. You got to know that and your industry. You got to understand your industry. For a new CPA, they got to get into an industry and understand it so they get that domain knowledge. Then what you want to do is wrap on top of it what we would call strategic thinking, uh, learning how to anticipate the future. That's that future trend piece. Uh, another one would be like leadership and communications. That's almost a given. Collaboration. Uh, and then there's one that's called kind of integration and synthesis, being able to connect dots. Okay. So being able to, so now what you do is when you put those across the top of the T, the horizontal bar, that's what we call boundary crossing skills. Those skills allow you to take your knowledge and move it into new domains. So in a big company, you might be in a supply chain and then you're going to work in the retail side. So you want to be able to apply what you know about the supply chain to the retail. Or if you're in a CPA firm, you might be in the tax department, but now you're going to lead a whole division in an industry group. And now you have to apply tax audit, et cetera, to manufacturing. So it's the ability to, to kind of understand different industries or different contexts and be able to apply those skills. So I think whatever that um, all CPAs right now have to start shifting from the rear view mirror to the windshield. Right. We're a very reactive profession. We've been trained to be reactive. And reactive doesn't work in a world of exponential change. Yeah, and these new skills, these boundary crossing skills will help us deal with the rapid change, as you're saying, where your degree is obsolete in three years. Exactly. Which is scary when I have two that are in university right now and a couple more coming <laughs> to pay for. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's that was great to wonderful be here with you guys. and uh, great to meet you. Awesome.